Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, you're listening to Wikipedia. It is Mickey here and this week on the podcast I speak to Wikipedia regular Dr. Cliff Harvey about a host of different topics that have been on our minds in the nutrition and health space. This includes topics such as potential trends for 2023, the supplements that we are taking right now and why, and also other interesting supplemental and nutrition related facts, uh, such as the use of vitamin C for potential acute illness and infection and even uh, injury. So this really is a fly on the wall conversation, which I really think you're going to enjoy. For those of you unfamiliar with Cliff, he has been on the podcast several times now because he is a wealth of information. He has a PhD and is New Zealand's expert on the effects of a ketogenic diet in a healthy population. But he is so much more than that. He has been helping people to live healthier, happier lives and to perform better since starting in clinical practice way back in the late 1990s. Over this time, he's been privileged to work with many Olympic, professional, Commonwealth and other high-performing athletes. He has also worked with many people to overcome the effects of chronic and debilitating health conditions. Along the way, he has founded or co-founded many successful businesses in the health, fitness and wellness space, including the Nutrition Store Online and Holistic Performance Institute, which is New Zealand's leading certification and diploma for health, nutrition, health coaching and performance that has many of the world experts teaching on the courses, so students are learning from the best. Cliff has over 20 years experience as a strength and nutrition coach and in addition to his PhD research, he is a registered clinical nutritionist, qualified naturopath and holds a diploma in fitness training and health coaching in patient care. And you can find Cliff over at cliffharvey.com and on Instagram at cliffydog. A final note. I talk a lot about the Currens supplement, which you know I'm a huge fan of, and I would just like to remind you that my name, Mickey, M-I-K-K-I, saves you 25% over at currens.co.nz on their signature product, the Currens Blackcurrant product, for your first purchase. So absolutely take advantage of that if you haven't already. And the best way to support the podcast is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. This way, more people become aware of Wikipedia and the information that the guests share extends well beyond just the listenership at this point in time because it is a minefield when it comes to podcasts out there. So if you like it, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. All right, team, enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Cliff Harvey. I'm sort of thinking, shit, if we move up north, <laughs> I, can't, I can't not have the internet working because I don't exist in real life. No, I know. I, I uh, And I actually do know that almost. <laughs> um, I'm at my dad's and, uh, and 
he's like, do you know, I'm paying extra to stay on these copper wires or whatever for internet. I think I might switch over to ultra fast fiber next year. And I'm like, mate, why are we not already on this ultra fiber, <laughs> ultra fast fiber? <laughs> so frustrating. We once had, we were on copper at one stage and they, it was really difficult to install fiber. Um, but it was actually, I think from memory, it might've even been faster because we were basically right next to the junction or something. So it's kind of like it of the capacity diminishes the further you get away from the junction. Interesting. Okay. See, that was quite cool. Well, that is quite cool. I don't know how far or close dad is from any sort of like internet uh, junction or copper fire, copper connection. All I know it's, it's so slow and it's, but it's fine because here we are. That's the important thing. We are on the line. That is the important thing. Yeah. And and it's funny because I'm looking at you in your singlet and you can quite clearly see that you can't see because you might not see my video. I'm in a puffer jacket because it is so cold here in Dunedin. It's going to be stinking hot up here today. Yeah. How, how, um, how's family stuff? You're, you're all right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Dad has he was in hospital last week, um, with cellulitis oh, no. and COVID. <laughs> and, that was me um, four weeks ago. Oh God, minus the cellulitis. Hopefully, no. I got an uh, an infection in my knee from wrestling. Oh, and it it blew up, but I didn't. I was on the cusp. I didn't quite need to get antibiotics, so it didn't quite progress to that stage, but it was still like pretty badly infected, so it knocked me out for a week. And then um, I went and I spoke at AMA about long COVID, and I caught COVID there. So ironically, I was speaking about long COVID. I caught COVID, and I think it was because it was on the tail end of that infection. I was already pretty run down. And so because of coming out of that infection, and I probably got the infection because I was run down, so all those things coalesced, and I was. Um, I still feel the effects now. It's like a month later and I'm obviously virus free, but I think it did some damage to my lungs because they feel pretty messed up at the moment. You sound actually a little bit breathless. Yeah, it's, I, I feel fine apart from that. Yeah. So getting a little bit run down, but it's just, um, I think for me, it's just hit my lungs. Well, Cliff, this could be quite a good sort of segue into, because I, what I wanted to chat to you about, well, one, I just wanted an excuse to chat because it's always fun to chat to you. Good to finish off the year with, with, with my BFF. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on what some of the, what to think about for 2023 with regards to diet, supplements, maybe foods, you know, because this is the time of year where we're we're starting to get our inboxes sort of flooded with either, you know, this dietitian thinks this or watch out for this in 2023. So I wanted to go to the source of all truth. Well, you're not quite, but you know, to someone who is really knowledgeable in, in this space and, and get your thoughts. But equally, you did mention that you'd just done a talk on long COVID. You yourself are just, you know, recovering from some of the lasting effects. Um any insights into some helpful things for people with long COVID at the minute? Because it is rampant right now. It seems that every single person I know is um, sort of either recovering or or yeah. or is has it. Well, it's it's crazy because I think with with where we're at now, I think people could justifiably make a claim that you know these successive waves of COVID are less severe in a gross sense than 
the previous ones and maybe you know people are sort of saying well we've just got to learn to live with it and it is you know to some degree just like a a bad flu now in terms of its severity and its you know fatality ratios and things like that but i think the the bigger issue is that considering what estimates are like 80 plus percent of people in new zealand have had covid now and the the research suggests that around 35 percent of people who contract covid will get long covid we might have you know a million or more people walking around with long covid right now so that's certainly a, a going to have a pretty big impact on on everything you know on our, on our economy next year and on you know the potential to spring back from this recession and all that kind of stuff so i don't think it's a small issue and i think that a lot of people are underplaying it because it's just whenever you have post viral complications there still seems to be a bit of a tendency to just write it off as being in the person's head you know it's like oh you've recovered now maybe you should just harden up kind of thing and i think that's very much been our attitude here in New Zealand but you know I've been working with a lot of people who who have long COVID and it it can be quite debilitating in the most severe cases and it, it really plays back into the discussions that we've had a bunch of times Mickey that I'm seeing very clear things that even ostensibly healthy people who I'm seeing at least with long COVID are undernourished they just don't realize it until there's a big challenge, you know, a big threat. Yeah, yeah. So so if we think about what, because I know you've done obviously a lot of research and I, I will um, I want to sort of dive a bit deeper into that malnourished piece because I think, because, you know, you'll know that's a really big part of it. Yeah. Any other risk factors that might sort of predispose people to long COVID, Cliff? Yeah, it's, they're, they're pretty much the same as COVID. So the, the biggest risk factors are age being with obesity or with metabolic disorder. Like those are the biggest things. And then obviously if people have ex pre-existing immune dysregulation, maybe they've got, um, you know, a suppressed immune system, then obviously that's going to be a risk factor. Comorbidities are going to be a risk factor because there's already pre-existing inflammation and damage. So those things are really the clear ones. Um, but <laughs> I think alongside that, we also need to look at the fact that a lot of people who contract long COVID are undernourished in some way. And the, the research suggests maybe up to two thirds of people. Um, I would say probably higher because we've got to also consider what we're comparing it with. So, you know, we see a lot of people, for example, popping up in the research, we see a lot of indications that just as one example, people with long COVID often are um, undersupplied with protein. But what are we comparing that with? Are we comparing it to the RDA? Because if that's the case, then maybe it's a whole bunch more people. Completely, because of course the RDA is so low already. Yeah, and if we're looking at things like vitamin D, you know, massive debate obviously, is is 15 animals per litre sufficient in vitamin D in terms of those endogenous levels? Probably not. Like it's really got to be over 100 or 125 nanomoles. So I think, I personally think that the numbers are probably a lot higher. Um, that might be my bias because I that tends to be what I see in practice. But the, the cohort that I've been working with are not the risk factor cohort. Not one of my long COVID clients is old, you know, with overweight or obesity or has pre-existing metabolic syndrome. They're all ostensibly relatively healthy. Um, so they tend to fit in a model of people probably 30 to 30 to 50, uh, you know, healthy, exercising and eating 
what appears to it, the sort of eyeball level be pretty good. Um, but then when we analyze it, that they're, they're typically their diets are typically insufficient in a bunch of stuff. And it's not just a few things, and it's not just the typical things that, you know, we, we've often talked about, AD, um, maybe E, zinc, selenium. It's, it's, a, it's those and more. So, you know, including a lot of the B vitamins and things. So, yeah, it's an interesting one because a lot of people will jump several steps down the track. And, and maybe those are some of the trends that we're starting to see, like with supplements, for example. You know, a lot of stuff based around glutathione, um, you know, MitoQ, it seems to be really taking off. And I think partially that's because of the the attention paid by by, by COVID and long COVID with respect to, you know, endogenous coenzyme Q10 levels. Um, nicotinamide riboside, you know, looks looks pretty cool uh, in the research for COVID and long COVID. Um, and, and those are all awesome. I think that's fantastic. But at the first sort of ground level, we, we need to make sure that we're getting in a, enough of those essentials. And so I would always put a, a good quality multi. I mean, of course, you know, trying to eat better as well. But in the first instance, alongside trying to eat better, I would always put a, a good quality multi in the mix first and foremost. Well, the thing, Cliff, that you just said that you highlighted before you talked about those multivitamins, or sorry, um, the vitamins and minerals that that are cropping up, is that the people that you're seeing long COVID in are already those people who try to eat healthy. And I guess that's the that's probably the major thing, right? Is you know, if I and we definitely have spoken about this before that um, I don't think that you can get what you need from a quote-unquote healthy diet, if you like. And just um, because so much of what is what we would usually, what we would have historically been able to rely on to get these nutrients and you just do not find them in those foods anymore just by way of processing of um, the way that our food is transported, uh, you know, how we cook it and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Interesting on the sort of broad on on your uh, insight into what people are taking to help sort of I suppose increase their health like these things which help our own antioxidant and anti-inflammatory sort of systems yet of course many of those minerals and vitamins that are just sort of broad uh, that you're seeing sort of deficiencies in they all work in those pathways anyway right like these are coenzymes or cofactors in our antioxidant system in our anti-inflammatory system. Yeah, and the, the big difference that I don't think is appreciated enough, even though it's right there in the name, are the, these are essential, right? So they're essential vitamins and minerals, meaning we can't produce them within the body. And so they're going to be intricately involved in every element of health, and that includes the immune system. And so, you know, take zinc, for example, which 25% of Kiwis don't take in enough in their diet, maybe even more. That's involved in over 300, uh, you know, metalloenzyme reactions, many of which are involved with immune function. And so if you don't have enough of that mineral, you simply can't support your immune system adequately. The, the other things, which I still think are really cool, like your mitoQs, your you know nicotinamide riboside, your quercetin, your resveratrol. M maybe the evidence is a bit more tangential for those. Maybe it's not as strong, but <laughs> you know, your particularly your mitoQ, your NAD precursors. Um, what's the other one that I was thinking? Oh, oh N-acetylcysteine for glutathione production. They're really cool, but they're not essential. They're just helping to boost those endogenous levels that are often subpar for people, particularly people with risk factors or people who have been depleted by a viral challenge. But the other things we're taking in those essentials, they're also supporting those systems. 
um, yeah. and, and more, I guess, integrally, because without the essentials, you, you can't do much of anything. So it's not that those other things aren't important, it's just, or aren't beneficial. It's just that we need to take, I believe, a stepwise approach to stuff, you know, start out with what's essential and then add in the icing on the cake later. You know, it's the icing on the cake for a reason. But although some people like to eat icing out of the bowl, that's, that's okay too. I'm not here to judge anyone. <laughs> and cake mix, cake, cake mix before it's been baked, you know. Exactly. Um, so, Cliff. I would probably eat more cake mix if I was baked. <laughs> I'm sure you would. <laughs> um, so, on um, the multivitamin sort of front then, obviously you're a fan of good green vitality. And I wonder, is that what you would rely on for your multivitamin, your broad spectrum, or do we need to sort of uh, amp it up a little bit more? And I'm and I'm not talking about anyone with a specific deficiency in any particular nutrient that they have been tested and we, we know that they're deficient, albeit you actually, it's very difficult to test a lot of the nutrients which... Mm which might be insufficient and you, you look more towards what they're actually doing. But um, broad spectrum, is GGV enough? Yeah, I think it is. And obviously people listening in will will know that I always disclose my conflict of interest. You know, I am one of the founders of Newsiest and I'm one of the developers of Good Green Vitality itself. Um, but the reason I dig it is because it, it is basically a multi, right? It's a multi with good forms of ingredients so they're the superior forms they're the sort of preferred forms that you typically see in a practitioner only vitamin or mineral uh but then it also has all that other extra stuff so by nature of being a greens product that's in a powder you know we can add in some some cool extras so some vegetable berry herb extracts you know some mushrooms things like that so although they're not in doses that would be specifically indicated for a particular condition it's just providing a little bit more of the secondary nutrition which in a lot of multis you just don't get enough room for because you know you you don't want to take more than say three or four caps in a serve at most. You don't want to be taking fifteen or twenty caps, and so just with a, a powdered product you can get a little bit more in there, um, particularly with respect to those secondary nu- nutrients. Um, and so long as the company that's making it has an awareness of the the better forms, then that's super important. Like so many of the multis that I see in the cheap you know big box type stores. You look at the ingredients and it's like, you know, magnesium oxide and zinc oxide and and those types of forms, they're, they're just not very well absorbed. And although with the better forms, you could make a claim that there's not much difference, there's certainly a big difference between the really poor forms and the better forms. So magnesium 3 and 8 versus magnesium aspartate versus magnesium glycinate, gluconate or citrate, I don't really think there's that much difference, even in terms of crossing the blood-brain barrier. Sure, some of them do, but it's like a small effect, right? Um, so if you take enough magnesium, you're probably just getting it. Kind of like what we see with protein, you know, do you need to take BCAAs? Probably not if you get enough protein, because you're going to get more than enough and any extra is not really going to do anything. Um, so that that's really the key is just making sure that the product has enough of what you need um but from good good sources because obviously you're not going to absorb or utilize within the body the poor poor sources as well so cliff have you done a deep dive into athletic greens and how that uh compares to ggv i don't know how much i can say but um oh, I tell me all on i want to know <laughs> yeah well i, I really want to know athletic greens Athletic Greens and Good Green Vitality kind of started at, at the same place and time, you know. Uh, that In the same room. M- more or less. Uh, 
we actually used to produce athletic greens uh, under contract, and so they they were very similar formulas in the early days. They diverged because there were obviously different companies. We were very friendly with them. We had a sort of mutual non-compete for certain areas. So in effect, Athletic Greens was in the States and we were worldwide. Um, that's now changing. So there's no more sort of non-competes. And I would say that on balance, Good Green Vitality has evolved more because we've just got more, I would say we have more experts involved who have pushed the formula um, and, and changed the formula over time. So it's evolved with the, the science. So. Athletic Greens is a good product, but I, I believe strongly that Good Green Vitality is superior, and it's actually better value too. So, I mean, it's you're winning on both both counts. Yeah, no, that's um, it's interesting because a lot of people have asked me about um, Athletic Greens. It seems to be everywhere on the internet, on every podcast that you sort of tune into is sponsored by yeah. Athletic Greens, um, and a lot of people have asked me that. And what you've said is is pretty much I've sort of said. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure they're very similar, um, but have never quite known, um, you know, where the differences sort of lie. But you've, you've. Uh... Well, Chris, the the founder of Athletic Greens used to work for me. I, I know him from school, and um, he was a little bit older than me. But for a short time, he worked um, just part time in one of my stores, and so we were, you know, we would often talk a lot. Um, I, I think that perhaps, you know, I, I imagine he picked up a few things from me along the way and and vice versa yeah totally so yeah 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 nice okay no that's really good because a lot of people wish they were like oh I love athletic greens but it it's so expensive or it's not available in New Zealand so I'm like hey good green vitality that's the one that you know that's well as you said it's much more cost effective actually and it's better so I think you could you know quite clearly say that I mean and people will always have Debates around what what is better, um, but I think if you look at it ingredient by ingredient, it's I, I think a superior formula, and because it's better value for money, I mean it, it probably should be more expensive, but it's not. So that's that's just the the bonus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I do want to pick up on some of those supplements you mentioned, but what I first want to do is sort of um, close the loop on this long COVID. So can you just give us, you know, um, I don't know if you can do it in three and four tips or whatever, but what are some things that people who might be struggling with long COVID, where do they focus their attentions on? I think first and foremost, they need to stop trying to do too much and that they need to treat themselves. It's exactly the same situation as... Uh, you know, a, a client I'll get in who has chronic fatigue syndrome after influenza or Epstein-Barr virus, right? We take them back to real base level in terms of exercise. So basically stop and then tomorrow start doing very, very minimal strength training because strength training has the most tonic effect on the immune system and it's not going to overstress it to the point where we get that big sort of stress reactivity, which then, then impairs the immune system. And, you know, immune and inflammatory responses. So I think first and foremost, people need to stop doing so much and stop trying to push through and just take a bit of a break, but slowly start to get back into exercise with the focus being on very low volume strength training. Um, I think outside of that, the other lifestyle stuff is critically important, making sure that they're getting enough sleep, um, you know, mitigating the, the negative aspects of stress where they can. But then nutrition wise, the nutrition picture is is kind of a difficult one to just have something really punchy because it's difficult sometimes for people to to change their nutrition habits. But I think that if people are taking more of a modular approach to meals, so eating meals rather than snacks and making sure those meals are based on 
you know, the foundation of protein, veggies and healthy fats and then carbs on top of that according to how they sort of feel or what they desire, that's a good start. Um, but obviously supplements are going to help, right? Because in the absence of eating perfectly right now, and often your, your appetite is kind of messed up after COVID too. So it's something we've we've observed a lot is that people stop eating so much because of COVID and then that lags a bit. You know, I've certainly found that my appetite's been suppressed since COVID and I've noticed it with a lot of my clients too. Um, so taking some supplements, you know, is certainly going to help. And I would I would always start with covering the foundations. So I would always start with a good quality multi like we talked about, uh, probably fish oil because a lot of, well, everyone we're seeing at the moment with long COVID is also not taking in enough omega-3s. Uh, a protein powder if they're not able to get enough protein through their meals. Then looking at the next tier, which is those those key supplements that there's strong evidence or really strong plausibility for for helping with long COVID. So that would be predominantly um, coenzyme Q10, preferably MitoQ, uh, nicotinamide riboside, and N-acetylcysteine for glutathione production. There's some other things that people could throw in there, but those are really the the big three, I think, at this stage. Uh, and then the other one, which doesn't have any specific research as far as I know for long COVID, but we've seen extraordinary clinical results and it just ticks all the boxes in terms of its kind of plausibility as lion's mane. Amazing. Oh, actually, also, and this is something that's just come up because I've been reading about it lately. I, I don't know if we've talked about it in the past, you and I, but I've talked before about the idea of vitamin C flushing, which is an old naturopathic thing that you do. And it's like taking a... So vitamin C flushing, there's different protocols, but the one that I've been taught, you know, 25 odd years ago and that I've used myself is you take about a gram of vitamin C every one to two hours through the day until you reach that point where you've got to run off to the bathroom, right? Because that'll happen with vitamin C. But you've noted down how much you've taken in that day. And once you get to bowel tolerance, you then in subsequent days cut it back to 80%. And then once, uh, if that at some stage ends up being too much, then you cut it back by it to 80% again. And eventually you can then start to slowly tailor it back to what you'd want to have as a maintenance dose. So a maintenance dose for vitamin C might be just a gram a day or so. Um, but the idea is that we want to try and load in some vitamin C in the same way that you might get from intravenous vitamin C. Now, there's not a lot of strong evidence in humans for the effect, um, but there is pretty strong evidence from IV vitamin C that at least it will improve fatigue, right? And so that's kind of cool, but I think there might be more going on as well. And that this is drawn from, there were a lot of hypotheses thrown around in the 80s that haven't really been researched enough since then. And if you look at animals, this is all stuff I've been reading recently, so I'll have to dig in and see whether it's all really plausible or not. But it seems really interesting. In animals, when they're sick or they've got an infection or something, they really ramp up their vitamin C production. But of course, humans, bats and guinea pigs, and I always throw in for my students vampires as well, don't produce their own <laughs> vitamin C. And so we need to ingest it, which is why you can't feed guinea pigs just rabbit feed because it doesn't have any vitamin C in it. Um, but we don't necessarily up our vitamin C intake when we're sick, or maybe not enough, even though a lot of people will take a little bit of extra vitamin C, maybe we don't increase it or increase it enough um, to match what would be happening naturally in an animal that increases its own endogenous production. Yeah, interesting. So who knows? I, in the past, I've, I've trialed it myself, and I do find that when 
it would appear that I have a greater need. Like if I'm really run down or if I'm you know sick, I've got a virus or something, I can take in a lot of vitamin C before reaching bowel tolerance. Whereas when I'm feeling really good and I don't have any you know illness or infection or whatever, then I can't take in anywhere near as much. And we're talking about you know maybe a tenfold difference. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. So um, at the start, I was telling you about my dad with COVID and, and um, I got him on vitamin C, 1500 milligrams. And I said every couple of hours um, for um, his, well, one with the cellulitis, I'm like, well, with the collagen and the vitamin C, it's not going to do any harm to have more vitamin C. Yeah. Uh, but also I remember a few years ago, this might even be 10 years ago, Cliff, like someone told me about vitamin C for sport injuries so this is a bit of a tangent but based on that so so it's based on the same premise that you take large doses of vitamin c every couple of hours for something like a hamstring tendinopathy or something like that and literally this is what i did and it cleared it right up which was super interesting and hey no i'll say that again and in potentially a coincidence my hamstring tendinopathy went away yeah so of course i of course, I, I'm like, well, that was the one thing I was doing for my hamstring tendinopathy and now it's gone. It could be that. It could be something entirely different. But this was something I was struggling with, with for a good, you know, it would have been a good couple of months. And for it to resolve, um, for me to then be able to go and, and I did like a sub three um, marathon in Sydney, like, you know, a month later, um, I was pretty sold on the impact. And then I put it on Facebook, I put a post on Facebook and I had so many people say, you know what, I did this for this reason and this happened. So lots of people see really, really good benefits from it. Yeah, no, I think there's, I mean, we, we can talk about the problems with research, but they, there there is, I think, enough research. I mean, a Cochrane database, database review suggested that um, while vitamin C won't like prevent or cure the common cold, it, it probably will, insufficient doses reduce the duration and severity. So there's some plausibility there. And I, I think what, what we suffer from with that particular line is I don't think we've got enough high quality research into into those higher doses and it's also probably quite variable right because if we do consider that bowel tolerance is, is a thing well it is a thing but if we consider that bowel tolerance it has some association we don't know but if it does have some association with the the requirement for vitamin c within the body and so we need to titrate our dose according to bowel tolerance that's a harder thing to study as well, and I don't think it's been done. Now, it, it could be done, yeah. and it's certainly it's not, a, it's not a difficult trial, but it's just a little bit different to how you'd usually run things. You know, and in the same way that I think the vitamin D research is a little bit conflicted in that there's a big discussion as to what is actual deficiency or insufficiency, and if you just get a whole bunch of people and prescribe them X dose of vitamin D, is it actually going to give you the result you want like the numbers are going to be quite washy because you're not necessarily tailoring the dose to the requirement um and so yeah yeah it's it's one of those same sorts of situations but i think there's enough plausibility there you know and so it's it's worth um i mean it's certainly worth more research that's for sure and it's it's an area that i i think is kind of cool and we forget, kind of like creatine we forget about vitamin c but also with COVID and long COVID, they ha we have, we, we, by we, I mean everyone, um, it has been observed that vit endogenous vitamin C levels are lower in people with COVID and long COVID, which you'd suspect. Yeah, interesting. Yep. 
Yep, for sure. Well, that's super interesting. Um, and I I agree with you with regards to it's an often overlooked thing. And I, I've looked at vitamin C research for a few like different companies when I've been writing some content and copy for them. And it always strikes me that the doses used in a lot of the studies are actually really low compared to the doses that we're talking about. And so part of it is potentially a methodological issue as well like potentially yeah. if they'd done it run the designer study in a way that you're describing maybe the um, impact of those it, um, it seems mad though right condition. because when you look at mm, the yeah. rda amounts they're very very low and obviously to prevent scurvy we don't need that much but no then in terms of other almost elective requirements how much do we actually need we, we really don't know and so you know and people are, are quite often panned for discussing vitamin Z and that comes from obviously you know well-known people like Linus Pauling who was just such an advocate for high dose vitamin C and maybe did take it to the extreme where it became a little bit ridiculous and so because of that you know everyone gets tarred with the same brush um, and this is one of the issues in nutrition right is that people don't necessarily take a step back and just objectively look at something and say hey well this might be fun to research and just see what happens you know, we all take our biases in where we're immediately assuming that something's awesome or it's it's crap without necessarily understanding enough about it. Yeah. Well, on that note, as a bit of a tangent, but picking up on one of your supplements, nicotinamide riboside, did you see uh, Peter Atia's post a couple of weeks ago about Inar? No. That said he was like, this, and he's actually, I'm sure he's been a proponent of it in the past. You know, he's had, he's talked to David Sinclair on his podcast and he hasn't been as enthusiastic um, as David Sinclair about its benefits, but, you know, the mechanisms for helping sort of optimize biomarkers and, and help with our um, mitochondria and all the rest of it are there. But his most recent post on it was warning people against taking it as a supplement. Interesting. For for what reason? Because if for people with existing cancer tumors, it in in this is preclinical trials have shown that it will propel um, growth of those tumors. And so, in his mind, and I'm this, so I was interested to hear your thoughts on it. He was like the the benefits of taking NR do not out way the risk the potential risk from with regards to um to cancer which he said and it's for people with tumors but of course there are people i mean we cancer is with us you know like our bodies are constantly like fighting and getting rid of dead cells or or cancer cells or whatever so he was very much of the a changed opinion uh that um not to be taking it in and he was really quite uh, black and white about it. And I guess that's the cautionary principle. Um, I, I've heard I've heard that in the past and like that that hypothesis that it could potentially drive tumor growth has you know been around for quite a long time. I remember at my old office, which I haven't used for quite a few years now, I, I remember sitting and talking with a cancer patient about that. And so for that reason I haven't prescribed NR to, to cancer patients, just in case. I, I don't know though. I, I I don't know. 
See, the thing is, when we, when we, particularly with cancer research, when we see things in in vitro studies, and then we try and apply those to the human condition, it's, it's a very different thing. And I'm not saying there's not a role for those in vitro studies. They're really important because they give us that sort of mechanistic plausibility for what might happen. Um, but then when we add the complexity of the, the living human organism and all the other cofactors that might be along with it, what we're really looking at with any of those NAD boosters is not necessarily providing an increase in endogenous levels. You know, what we're really doing is looking to correct potential degradation of those levels over time. And so I really dig, you know, like the, the um, chat you had with Charles Brenner about it. I really like his approach. And I really relate to his approach, which is, you know, don't think of this as anti-aging or don't think of this as something I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, like a miracle supplement. It's something that at the appropriate dose will probably improve your resiliency overall. And yeah. it's kind of that simple, right? But obviously, whenever someone has a condition, then we need to take into account, you know, what what's happening there. Now, the, a counterclaim to that is that if you remove the situation of someone with pre-existing cancer and you're thinking about potentially prevention of cancer, would it be the same? And obviously, the, the contrasting argument is that if you have poorer cellular energy dynamics, there's more potential for for further issues, you know, including cancer formation later in life. So, yeah, I kind of look at it. I, I really look at people need to understand what it is too, right? It, it's it's basically we will create NAD from the various niacin or you know nicotinamide forms. So basically, all of those B three forms will be involved. The the challenge is that we often can't take them in in a high enough dose to really restore levels that are degraded by everything else from diet, lifestyle, aging, all that kind of stuff. Sunlight, et cetera. Yeah. And so in the absence of doing everything else perfectly, I, I would still say that, uh, you know, some supportive supplementation based on what the evidence is showing us is, you know, prob possibly, probably of value. Um, but, you know, it, it is a good point because it, it, we, we also don't want to jump into the deep end and just say, well, this new miracle supplement is going to let me live to 180 and um, so I'm going to take shit tons of it. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, so true. And like, I do actually, I see a lot of people do those NAD um, infusions. Yeah. NAD plus infusions. Yeah. Is that similar, like the same thing? Pretty but much. But they're taking super physiological doses? Yeah, and it's, I guess it's just a way to get those levels up really quickly. I, I've never really been that big a fan of it, mainly because I think that you know, what um, Dr. Brenner and others have presented in the last few years shows that we can boost endogenous levels quite effectively just taking a supplement. And so again, I kind of think, I probably in the past have jumped on things too quickly and in too high a dose. So I'm probably a little bit more cautious now about the, the dosing I use, and it very much is with the idea of support. Um, and also within that, that that sort of framework of if you're doing all these other things well, maybe your levels of certain things won't be degraded to the same degree. It's not like purely by function of aging, we're going to necessarily deplete endogenous levels of glutathione, coenzyme Q10, and NAD. Maybe we will a little bit, but it's unlikely to be the to the same degree as someone who just lives on 
you know, a fast food diet and is with obesity and metabolic disorder and has all these other things going on and doesn't sleep well and spends too much time in front of screens and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so yeah, if, if we're taking care of the other things, then maybe just that little amount of supportive supplementation is going to help. And that's the other factor, right? If you have all these other things going on, which are precipitating negative outcomes, and then you also throw in something else, then who knows? Could it help? Possibly. Could it hinder? You never know because it, there, there might be too many uh, sort of accumulation of too many factors. And that's particularly true with cancer where you need a number of sort of factors typically to cause those genetic mutations. No, that makes sense. And, you know, Cliff, after we had our last convo in actual person over coffee and you were telling me about you taking NAC and, and NR, of course, like the good student I am, I went home and subsequently <laughs> ordered both of them. Um, and I have to say, I actually, and, and maybe this is just placebo, but I've been feeling great of late, you know, like because I take my, and this will lead us quite nicely into the supplements that we do actually take, which people are always asking me about. So I thought this was a good opportunity to sort of chat about it. So now I take, um, I take my vitamin D, 5,000 IU. I take my... Um, Curran's supplement, which I'll talk about more in a minute, but oh, cool. I take two of them. I love them. Um, Mita Q, take two of them, two of the five milligram. I, I now take my NAC, one of those big puppies. They're a big capsule. And I take two of the NR. Right. That's sort of my, my morning thing. And then later on in the morning after my workout, I'll take my good green vitality. It's quite pretty similar to what I take. Uh, I, I tend to load everything in first thing in the morning just so I remember to do it and so I have a, a shake with protein uh, so I have pea protein I have good green vitality in it to get all the multi stuff uh, I take a scoop of NAC I take fish oil with vitamin D and I put that into the shake as well uh, I take five grams of creatine and then I think that's everything I take two caps of um, resveratrol which is a nicotinamide riboside product as That's well. That's what I take, yeah. 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 Then I'll often take two two more caps later in the day. Um and I might take a, you know, one or two other protein shakes if I'm training that day as well. Yeah. Yeah. So Cliff, on the um NAC, what brand do you have? Because I have the Thorn NAC. Yeah, I use the uh, research nutritionals now. So RN RN Labs. Yeah. Um, so that's something I get from FX Med, and I, I just got that because it was the best value for money. Because I figure with things like that, if it's if it's the same thing, like if it's NAC powder and it's exactly the same, just go for the cheapest one. Kind of like creatine, right? If it's creatine monohydrate and it's from a reputable supplier, I just buy whichever's cheapest because at the same at the end of the day, it's 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 just the same stuff. I, I do the same for vitamin C too. I just get whatever is like the the best value because ascorbic acid is ascorbic acid. Yeah, totally. I've in the past bought my ascorbic acid from, I want to say John Apple, no, Gary Moller from got Gary Moller down the line <laughs> Good old in Gary. Uh, the Bay of Plenty. Yeah, I know. It's really cheap. Um, so, and then in addition to that, in my little good green vitalities, I also, that's where I put my creatine. I just put it in post-workout. Oh, cool. It's easier for me to, like you say, remember um, taking it. And I often put um, some more aminos in there as well, just because I like the flavor of the aminos and I figure... It's not doing any harm. Might as well just uh, just pop them in. Um, but with regards to the currents, I like that's not something that you take, is it? I, like I'm really sold on the benefits of of currents, both from a 
a health perspective, even though I'm generally healthy, you know, like, well, at least I, I'm pretty sure I am. Yeah. Um, but also, of course, from the um, endurance, the potential endurance benefits. And so with my running, I, I mean, I take two every morning and then if I'm running long, I am and again, it's all habit forming, trying to get into the habit of taking some with me. So after a couple of hours, I'll have another couple of the of the currents. But so many people I speak to about it are just blown away by the impact that it has for them on their hay fever, which I've never really suffered from. Yeah. Yeah, I um I think it's a good supplement. There's a lot of there are a lot of supplements out there that I th- I think are are good and worthwhile and you know might accuse another one that i'm not currently taking but i have in the past and it's one of those things that i think i should get another bottle because that could add to my stack i think you just get into the habit of taking certain things and i guess we prioritize you know what what we feel is going to give us or what's going to give us the biggest benefit and what's going to have the biggest crossover yeah totally Um, so for me obviously there's considerations like you know mental health stuff and Crohn's disease and a a few other things that I'm kind of trying to hit, you know, a a range of outcomes. Uh, But I also have quite a lot of berries and, you know, I'll I'll use maybe black currants or blueberries and things like that in my other shakes. So I I have a lot of berries through my other shakes through the day. And so I think that's probably providing a little bit of that benefit. But yeah, I mean, it's a good, good supplement and it's obviously got, you know, research behind it. Yeah, and I think it was just named for the second year in in a row uh, the European Sports uh, Performance Product at the um, the awards over in the UK. I know, and so um, because of my, I think my endurance bent. Obviously, I'm I'm you know pretty sold. For me, the main benefit would be those potential benefits for cognition, but. For cognition, I tend to, just because I'm biased towards it and I've seen such great results, you know, both in the research and in clinical practice, I tend to default to lion's mane when I'm thinking about the brain. (laughs) So, you know, we all have our little biases. Yeah, completely. But lion's mane's wicked. I love lion's mane. Yeah, and I was actually going to pick up on that with you again. Um, Earlier on, you mentioned lion's mane, though there's not a lot of research around long COVIDness, but it's something that you thought would could be beneficial. Can we just chat about some of the mechanisms why by which it works, just in general? Because obviously it depends on yeah. what the person is looking for as to what they might find benefit from from taking it. Yeah, so it, it, with the medicinal mushrooms, it's interesting because they tend to have a pretty broad overlap, and we tend to we tend to simplify down to. You know, like, um, what's his name? Bill Lagarkos used to say, lion's mane for the brain and, and reishi for everything else. It's kind of true to some degree. But there are obviously, you know, there's shiitake, there's cordyceps, there's maitake, there's all these different mushrooms that people can take, turkey tail and um, chaga and, and blah, blah, blah. And we tend to sort of simplify down as to what they do. So people tend to, myself included, take chaga when they need when they feel like they need a bit of an immune boost, or they'll take reishi just as a general all-rounder. Shiitake, similar, like it's like an all-rounder. Um, turkey tail, more for the gut or for specific applications, um, other specific applications. Lion's mane for the brain. But across the board, they all tend to help with immune infl- inflammatory modulation. So they tend to all be, broadly speaking, anti-inflammatory, immune supportive. Um, so they've got all of that covered off. The advantage with lion's mane specifically for long COVID or for people with, you know, cognitive stuff is that there's direct evidence 
suggesting that it reduces depression, anxiety, uh, improves cognition, reduces rates of perceived exertion, and it has a, a fairly a fairly good base of research that covers the various tiers because we've got in vitro research and we've got animal in vivo research and now human in vivo research showing that yes it does help with nerve regrowth so these um neuroregenerative factors in the brain it increases so we've got an increased neural repair so repair of those brain cells so cells of the brain and central nervous system are more likely to be to grow like new neurons is pretty cool um, to repair neurons and also to probably improve neuroplasticity as well. So in terms of what we would see for long COVID, just as an example, because it's broadly immune supportive, anti-inflammatory, and it's got those cognitive effects, given that a lot of people with long COVID report brain fog, memory problems, and things like that, it seems to hit those bases. So whether it's just that, um, well, what, what we tend to see is that acutely it has the, we get the most feedback about it. Other things people are like, yeah, I think it's helping. But with lion's mane, they say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's really helping my brain. Yeah. So it's dope. And again, it could be placebo. And I'm, but, but because the, I'm going to hedge things a little bit here, but because the research is pretty strong, I would say it's probably not placebo. However, I have been tempered in my thinking a lot lately by that article that John uh, Ioannidis wrote. Oh, uh, it tell was, me. It came out a little while ago, and I, I sort of glanced over it and thought, oh, that's interesting, but I never really dug into it. And I, I've read it in depth the last couple of days, and he he makes the case that probably the majority of research findings are false. And there's a real problem, and I've I've read a couple of other papers where they've discussed the idea of the repl replication problem, and it's particularly true in, I guess, sort of pseudosciences like psychology. All the psychologists are going to at you now, Mickey. But yeah. sort of the <laughs> sort of pseudosciences like psychology, where there's a very very small number of studies are replicated, and so we, we tend to take a give a much greater weighting to these studies that get a lot of a lot of play in the media it's like well a new study shows this and then people just take it as gospel yes now if it's not replicated we don't really know even if there is a statistically significant finding um and, and often studies are replicated but those replication studies they're not novel they're not sexy they don't get the same play so you start to see a, a, a bit of a shift that's not recognized and so we saw that with i i think the you know glucosamine research is quite equivocal now because initially it looked really good subsequent studies didn't really show much and now i think people are probably well i'm at least very on the fence i don't really think it does much but maybe it does who knows well interesting just because on that i was very much in that space but then over the last couple of months i've switched again now i'm a big fan of glucosamine I, something i saw and i can't remember what it was um and i'm like oh okay so we're back on with glucosamine chondroitin. And maybe it was um, my clinical experience and almost everyone who takes it gets a benefit, but I'm not sure. Well, that, that's the thing. I don't know either, to be honest, because initially it looked good. And then as other studies started coming out that sort of showed nil effect or you know maybe even a, a slight negative effect, I sort of thought, well, maybe there's nothing there. But I think subsequent studies have, again, shown some positive benefits. 
But we've got to wonder, even within our statistical modeling, we can't unequivocally say that just because something, it's very arbitrary. People don't understand how arbitrary it is. I'm not explaining that well because it's not arbitrary, but it is arbitrary to say that because something has I know what you mean. a, a p-value less than 0.05, that suddenly becomes the, the mark by which something is either a yes or a no. And that, that's yep. not really the case because we need to have, that only shows sort of possibility, you know, and you could, you could spin, you, you could flick a coin 20 times and get tails. Like that's a crazy significant result, but it doesn't mean that it, it actually means anything. No, because the next time I do it, there's only ever going to be a 50-50 chance of it being tails. Exactly, and I'm glad you said that because you didn't fall into the gambler's fallacy where people would say, well, the more you have, oh, yeah. the, the greater the chance. Well, no, on any, any individual spin, it's still 50-50. Yeah. Right? yeah. Even though on a universal level, you could argue that given that things regress to the mean, maybe there is a greater possibility that it's going to come up <laughs> as the opposite. But we can't ever say that on any one spin, right? So, yeah. Totally. And you're right, Cliff. Like, just because something is significant and statistically speaking doesn't make it meaningful or clinically relevant or, you know, that's that's where that personal and individualised um, uh, nature of trialling something to see if it works for you. That's right. That's where that comes in, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the size, the magnitude of the effect is really important. And that's not often reported in, in the mainstream. You know, just be there's a significant improvement in X or Y. But as we know, a significant improvement might not be anything meaningful at all. And, you know, that, that a really good example that I was talking about with a client the other day was with long term cannabis use and reductions in IQ, there, there probably is, even when we account for all other confounding influences, there probably is a significant effect on IQ. So people immediately think, oh, I wouldn't want to use, say, medicinal cannabis because there's a significant effect on my intelligence. But that significant effect is is so tiny, it's absolutely meaningless. Like we're talking about a drop of maybe two IQ points. You're probably going to vary more than that just from a by chance. poor night's sleep or by chance or whatever, you know, just because the, the questions are slightly different. There's going to be bigger impacts to that from, say, um, I mean, racial and ethnic differences are probably going to be greater than that effect anyway, um, because obviously IQ tests are, are racially biased. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where it's very difficult to pass all this out. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of statistics because it's not my specialty, but it, it always... I'm really fascinated by the idea of like correcting for confounding influences because we're using different statistical tools to correct for these other influences that are potentially impacting the outcome. But how accurate can we really be with that? Like how accurate can we be when we've got so many factors, you know, that that potentially affect an outcome like smoking, drinking, socioeconomic status, how much time you spend on your on your screens, how much sleep you get. Like, do we even correct for all of those? Usually not in studies. And so this is why it, it almost has to have a pretty big effect, right, to be meaningful at all, because we just don't know what, what all the other things are, are really doing to it at the end of the day, even though we try. 
Yeah, uh, completely. And I'm um, that's the argument I use whenever I'm talking about red meat, right, and the potential negative impact that is often reported. Um, yet, if you look at the absolute numbers versus the relative numbers, and you look at the population who eats red meat when we're looking at research, not in real life, but in research, all of those things come into play. And despite the fact that they've been quote unquote adjusted for, um, you just cannot, like, it, it's such an unknown, really, isn't it? Like, you just cannot adjust away all of these factors to then dial down on just one, one yeah. factor of a person's sort of dietary intake particularly in nutrition. Well, that's right. And even if you can adjust for the major things, like they'll, they'll typically adjust in those studies for the, the big stuff, smoking, drinking. Um, but then do, do they always adjust for, you know, the, the total diet quality? You know, so we, could we apply the diet quality index to it and would that shift things? Probably. Um, because let's face it, when we start to drill down into the demographics, it tends to be with those red meat type studies that... The red meat is not typically coming from uh, meals that contain a steak with a whole bunch of vegetables and some good healthy fats and maybe some good, you know, whole unprocessed carbohydrate sources. The red meat is tied up with burgers and pizzas and those types of things. And if that's your, your diet, I mean, generally, I think what we see with those types of studies is that it tends to point towards diet quality rather than components of diet or nutrients. So that's where we've got to take a big step back, right? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And you, you, another good point that you just raised, which I've never considered, is the impact of sleep, because that is almost never adjusted. Like they haven't adjusted for that in any studies. And now we know of how important it is with regard to overall sort of health. Like that's something which is a complete unknown in all of these studies. And it's so heavily bidirectional with with food. Yeah, You know, food will obviously affect sleep quality and duration. Sleep quality and duration will affect our ability to control our, our food. And it's almost like autonomic control, not necessarily um, deliberate control, you know. So people will tend to snack more. They'll tend to choose poorer quality snacks, more sugar, those types of things. Um, or, or just more convenient foods. Yeah. So, yeah, ma massive sort of interplay there. And it just it just goes to show that... I think the biggest thing is we, we need to, I think, be a lot less certain about our positions. Like this does this. Well, it may or may not, or it may be that this pretty much does this, but there's all these different influences and different nuances coming into it. Um, because I think the, the certainty is driven by biases and that causes most of the division that we have in nutrition, but probably more broadly in society, that drives the big divisions we, we have in, in all sorts of different debates. So Cliff, if I get back to lion's mane then, what doses are we talking about? Because I, I'm, I take what I see as recommended on you know, the packet that's in front of me, depending on what packet it is. And I go through phases with lion's mane, but I mean, I'm pretty, I, anything to help support my brain at this point in time, I think was going to just be helpful in the long, in the long, with the long game. So, um, and I play a long game. So what, what should I be looking at and what brands? I, I think less than a lot of people talk about still tends to give positive effects. So maybe anything from sort of half a gram all the way up to, you know, three grams or so. So that's, if you're looking at a powder, that's, um, you know, anything between 
sort of a sixth of a teaspoon all the way up to a teaspoon of powder. Of course, people can take more, but that tends to be an effective dose. I don't think enough work's been done on the the dose effects, but you know that's that tends to be what we see. Um, there are a lot of good brands out there now, um, but having said that, I think a lot of brands. It's also quite generic. You know, people don't realize that a lot of what you're seeing there is kind of the same stuff. You know, most of it comes out of China, which, you know, can be good or bad. There are good manufacturers in China. Uh, so most of it comes out of China and it's it's mostly all the same sort of raw material from the same types of places. So there, there are some companies that will specifically do, you know, wild harvested or they'll they'll grow it specifically. There are some companies doing that in the States. Um, the guys at Lifecycle, their liquid extracts at least, are all made there in Australia from either local um, varieties or varieties that they've grown. Uh, I still like, I mean, I, I like Lifecycle and Four Sigmatic just because I'm really familiar with them. But I don't, I don't really have particular biases towards brands. Um, I just like those guys and, and use them. Nice. I think at the minute I've got some real mushrooms, actually. And a real, Not it, fake ones. I think ones. it's called real mushrooms. Right. <laughs> I think the brand is called real mushrooms. I might be wrong about that, actually, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And uh, I've got a powder. Um, and I've got both lion's mane and reishi as well. Cool. Uh, but have I used them? No. I just need <laughs> to get into the habit of, uh, into the habit of having them. I tend to chuck everything in one shake, like I said, in the morning. If I if I want to take it for sort of a functional purpose that's not related to just getting in some extra protein or having a protein shake after training or something, then I just take it all in the morning just to get it in. Um, so yeah, but for for that, I like the because the the one of the challenges with the mushroom powders is they're they're, they're awesome to add to food actually because they're really umami. Yes. So, you know, you can try the different mushrooms and the different sort of levels of umami and different flavor profiles. You can add the powders to like meat patties and it, it can really elevate like a burger. Um, so that's really nice. But it's at the same time, I don't really dig always putting those into my smoothies because it does change what would otherwise be kind of a sweet, fruity smoothie into a umami kind of one. <laughs> so that's why I use yeah. the, the liquid extracts quite a lot because they're a lot easier to just chuck into anything. Yeah. Yeah, nice. I really like that idea, actually. I could imagine chucking it on my eggs or mm. having it um, as, like on top of my salad or something like that, you know, just to add, like, like you would nutritional yeast flakes, but potentially a lot more, I don't know, benefit. So, Cliff, that's, that might well be supplements. Um, and before we sign off, I do just actually want to get a little bit of your thoughts in and around diet trends just because I find it really interesting you know like what I think that it's pretty clear from with regards to um, what you see in social media and where sort of industry is going that I'll be spending yet another year defending meat uh, <laughs> out on my social media channels but you know what about in the space of fasting or ketogenic diets or you know what is there anything that you're seeing that's interesting you or you're, that you're curious about anything new or is it sort of business as usual in that space as boring as it is i think it is to some degree business as usual and that's mostly because these things that we see as trends I think we've already seen them, you know, when you're involved in the industry and even people who listen to your podcast, for example, they're probably more on the end of the early adopter. So yeah. they, they're probably quite familiar with, 
you know, the, the trends that have been over the last 10 or 15 years, because really, you know, fasting and keto have really come back into prominence probably the last, it would probably be the last 10 years, actually. Yeah. You know, and so obviously they've been around for a long time and, you know, there's been some of us who have used them intermittently for, for decades, but they, they really came back into prominence those last sort of 10 years. And I think a lot of people who were early adopters are very familiar with them now. And that goes for all of the things that you see quite a lot, um, you know, being debated quite a lot from cold immersion through to saunas, through to fasting and keto, you know, they're all kind of old hat to some degree. I think maybe one of the things that will shift a little bit, and I think we've already seen this as well, is that I think that the plant-based impetus is slowing a little bit. And the reason I say that is because, you know, a, a few things like, you know, research that came out recently showing that New Zealand beef and lamb was actually very climate friendly. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the economic indicators that a lot of the, the plant-based meat alternative companies are contracting a bit, you know, some of them have laid off a lot of staff, their market reach is not what they expected it to be. So I, I think people to some degree are going back to meat or maybe not rushing to plant-based alternatives so quickly. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Um, and I also think that given the the current climate, people are keeping things simple. You know, I don't think people are making a lot of big changes because there's so much other stuff changing. You know, it's, it's difficult to make big dietary changes when the cost of food is going up all the time. Although some people say that that drives food change, it certainly doesn't drive niche food change because often the niche stuff is quite expensive. So people are keeping it simple, you know, meat and veg, maybe buying cheaper cuts of meat, but, you know, really, really doing the simple stuff uh, for the time being. Because I, I, I kind of see that at the moment, just broadly a lot of people are in a bit of a holding pattern because the, the world's just a little bit weird at the moment, you know, with impending global recession and the continuing war and, you know, a bit of probably more political division than we've had in a long time. It just means that people are, I think, are waiting to kind of properly come out of the end of this pandemic because it hasn't finished yet, of course. And so I think that's really impacting what, what people are looking at and what people are doing. Um, so yeah, it, it is a bit more of, the same to be honest yeah no that's that's great that's a good read on it and i um i'm interested that you think that the plant-based movement is is slowing down so that i'll be really interested to see how that looks in 2023 actually just with regards to the messaging and and, and things around it i think it's going to become a lot more nuanced too because at the moment we we tend to have it has been cast as quite black and white. You know, we've got meat versus plant-based alternatives. And I think people are starting to see that it's not that simple when we look at appropriate land usage, when we look at the health implications, when we look at the manufacturing implications of a lot of the meat alternatives. But one thing that's going to potentially throw additional nuances there, nuance in there is that there will begin to be the rise of the, the cellular food, so the, the lab-created alternatives. So not plant-based meat alternatives, but, you know, laboratory growing meat or laboratory growing milk, you know, whey proteins that don't come from a cow, but they're bioidentical. That That's quite cool. I, and I, I'm not opposed to any of that, so long as it provides 
for nutrient density. We cannot be, always be sure that when we create something in a lab, although it might be the same as whey protein or the same as a, a casein protein, we don't know if it has all the other components involved. And how are we going to be able to create those? Or do we have to add them in? Are they going to be the same forms? Are they going to be as effective? You know. So and do we even I don't know what they the are? Net- I think it's the other thing. Well, that, exactly right, because we, we don't necessarily know. We, I, I think it would be naive to suggest that we've discovered all the nutrients that there are to know. We, we typically tend to think, we're kind of, I think at any stage in history, we're like that, um, that record company that rejected the Beatles because guitar-driven rock was basically dying, right? We, we never know exactly what's going to happen. You know, when you and I studied first time around, they didn't really know what leptin was. And now, obviously, that's, you know, a, a fairly foundational kind of thing in nutrition. There were a lot of things that were suspected, but certainly not in any way proven when we first studied. And it wasn't that long ago. It was a quarter of a century or so ago. Um, that actually is quite a long time. <laughs> I think about it. <laughs> but, you know, things, things change rapidly. And I think the problem we fall into or the challenge we have is that we think we know most of what there is to know. Yeah, but in fact, with you know an infinite infinite universe and with all the things that can be known, we know almost nothing. Yeah, to- totally. And actually, thinking of that uh, supplement space, one other thing which I am quite keen on are those nutraceuticals that are produced from organ meats. I mean, I love the idea of organ meats. Don't often eat them. I love pate, but I'm a big fan of those like primal home grown or the first light micronutrients like the putting those that freeze-dried powder into a, a pill and sort of taking them. I mean, you've please, seen Liver King, please you? tell me you Please tell me you're changing your podcast to the Liver Queen. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it would probably be more like the Pate Queen with a few capsules on the side, but not the PEDs, <laughs> not the PEDs. <laughs> See, I was going to change my one to the Burger King, but that's taken. Yes, <laughs> that was great. Oh, I loved it. All right, Cliff. Well, um, always great to chat to you. And I think from and as off as as often the as as is often the case, I have it in my head what we're going to talk about. We cover maybe five percent of that, but there's just too many other interesting things to discuss, and particularly with the long COVID and your insights and and because um, you've done a lot of the research on it, I was really keen to sort of get your thoughts on to on, on what people should do. What you're basically saying is I'm I'm a politician, and you ask a question, and I'll pivot <laughs> it to something I know. <laughs> that is exactly right and i don't exactly even know right. i don't even know it that well i just pivot into something i want to talk about oh that's funny now tell me cliff um and let's finish up with what's new at hpi or with cliff harvey what's new um again it's like with nutrition there's not much new but there's still some exciting things happening so next year is going to be very much just about the you know, continuing to create new content for the college. I've been working really hard on all of our clinical nutrition research summaries. So that's basically where I go through all the major conditions, uh, look at all the research that's been published since I last did an update, which is now, you know, four to five years ago, um, compile that into research summaries so that all of our students have basically treatment notes that they can use to just easily go back and see what 
you know what what the research is telling us for treatment. Um, the, the biggest thing we've got coming up is that we're going to have a really cool new membership system. And so this is either for existing members, for graduates, or anyone else who wants to sign up. And it'll have access to about 28 different continuing education courses with more added over time, uh, monthly workshops, a lot of support from the team. It's, it's, it's pretty wicked, and I think it'll be one of the better membership systems out there for practitioners or people who are interested in nutrition and health. Um, so that's really our big thing, and it all just comes down to wanting to support our community that little bit better and uh we, we noticed through covid that when we did you know little online workshops and had more sort of collegial stuff people just really loved it and that's one of the things we can bring to the table is that ongoing support for people so they feel really comfortable either in practice or in their own health amazing that sounds so great cliff and um and i saw when you sent out an email about that and i just thought it was such a great idea like the idea that you've got all of this stuff at your fingertips as a practitioner and you've got the support of people with the likes of you with the experience that you've got. Um, and you. And me, and, yeah. And Eric I, and I Ashley just, and Kirsten. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Like with everyone, you know, with people coming through, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, remind us where we can find you. You can find us at holisticperformance.institute. Perfect. And of course, um, Cliff Harvey, PhD on, on the interwebs as well, right? Yeah, find me on the interwebs. I'll probably throw in a few things about pit bulls and medicinal cannabis and other off-topics as well. <laughs> I like it. It's great. All right, Cliff, Merry Christmas. Awesome, Chief. Thanks, Mick. enjoyed that I always love chatting to Cliff such a wealth of information and um, I could talk to him for hours and I know that you guys really enjoyed the conversations that we have and if you have any suggestions for future episodes with Cliff please let me know via Instagram or via Twitter that would be amazing and don't forget my name Mickey M-I-K-K-I saves you 25% over at currens.co.nz on your first purchase of their signature product right team next week on the podcast i have the pleasure of talking to alessio fasano all about gluten celiacs and non-gluten celiac sensitivity in addition to autoimmune disorders until then though you can catch me over on instagram at mickey willardin twitter at mickey willardin facebook at mickey willardin nutrition or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can book a one-on-one -on -one consult with me or sign up to any number of my health plans that I have available there. All right team, till next week, see you later.